tonight's Dharma talk, and the word Dharma means path or way, is on engaged Buddhism. And engaged Buddhism is another description of a very uh, active way of expressing awareness, of feeling our love for life and living from that love. the basic principle in engaged Buddhism is non-harming, is realizing our reverence for life so that it's alive and immediate and real and, and really having our moments of our life lived from that place. Revelation 7.3 Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees. And yet, we're in a world right now, as we know, where we're hurting the earth every day in big ways, and the seas, and the trees, and each other. So one of the great inquiries, and it's one of the ongoing inquiries that we're asked to make, is what is it that has us be so violent? And it doesn't matter whether we have conceptual, quick answers, it's a very deep inquiry, because unless we really look into that, we continue the cycle of harming not only our earth, and not only each other, but really destroying ourselves daily in the process. The Buddha had a very simple way of talking about violence and greed, which are kind of flip sides of the same coin, which is that any moment that we act in a way that's harmful is a moment that we're under the misunderstanding that we're separate. That if we're causing suffering, it's because deep down we feel separated from our world and at risk. In some way we feel like we have to defend ourselves, We feel like we're not enough. We feel like we have to grab to have more and to complete ourselves. In a similar way, there's a Mayan prophecy that predicts cycles of crisis whenever humans get disconnected, whenever humans forget that they belong and are of this earth, and that we belong to each other and with each other, that these, there's crises that happen and they take the shape often of huge storms and droughts and volcanoes and earthquakes. If we look close, we can really see it. If we look at any kind of violence and, you know, just ask that question, well, what possibly would drive a person to act in that way? We find severed belonging. We find a disconnect. You know, we can see it when somebody would kill for drugs. I mean, you cannot be aware of the life that's there if you're just willing to just snuff it out for some drugs. There's severed belonging when there's a willingness to blow ourselves up in order to blow up the enemy. And there's severed belonging if we support legislation that harms poor women. And there's severed belonging if we're manipulating finances so as to 
add extra millions to our millions. And there's severed belonging if we're willing to hurt our own bodies by eating too much or taking too much, too many drugs or whatever it is. It doesn't matter what we describe. Any way that we cause harm to others or to ourselves comes out of some deep experience of disconnection. And I sometimes think of it that we arrive in this life and we're kind of a spacesuit self. We assume a spacesuit. And it's as if we're having to navigate some alien environment. And so we build our equipment up as we go so that we can make it through all the difficult circumstances and get what we need and protect ourselves from trouble. And we are actually so involved with this spacesuit that we think that's who we are. Our sense of who we are is the self that needs things and is protecting from things and having to pretend and having to prove. We're more identified with those qualities and characteristics than the deep essence of presence. So Mother Teresa, towards the end of her life, described what she said was the biggest disease today, and she says, it's not leprosy or tuberculosis, but rather the feeling of not belonging. And I think that's really a powerful statement, because in this society it's um, a disease that's reached epidemic proportions. I mean, we live in a world that's so much, so many times our day-to-day life is so unnatural in the sense of disconnected with the natural rhythms of the seasons, or the weather around us, or the plants, or the trees, or our own bodies. We're so lost in thoughts. We often can go through days, weeks, months without really feeling a, a tender, intimate relatedness with each other. Not belonging is a big deal. And it's no surprise, given the archetypal myth that's really the source of our Western psyche, of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that the message we sometimes just don't even pay attention because it's so worn and familiar. We forget the power of this myth that basically says we're flawed to the core and we don't belong and that we need to spend our lives making up for some fundamental core default defect. That's a pretty big deal. Now, in contrast to this kind of worldview that our Western culture holds, that creates this sense of, I don't belong, I have to fight hard to belong, and this constant anxiety about it, like, am I okay? In the mystical traditions, in the wisdom traditions, which includes Buddhist practices, the guiding view is, instead of perceiving ourselves as flawed and not belonging, is that our very nature is loving awareness. That's what we're made of. That's the source of our being that we're naturally good and naturally whole. And we forget, and when we forget we can cause trouble. 
to ourselves and each other. So really, spiritual life is really a process or a practice of remembering. We're coming back to remember really who we are, which is of this earth and with each other, and in the most basic way, loving awareness. So in engaged Buddhism, we are learning to remember by paying attention to our inner life, to our relationships with each other, and our relationships with the earth. And it's a very committed act of attention. Because we tend to get into a trance where our attention gets very small-minded, and we get preoccupied with our personal wants and fears, and we forget about this relatedness to the world. So what I'd like to is do tonight is explore those layers of relationship, how we engage and reconnect with our inner life, with each other, with our earth, in a way that can help us to really walk with compassion. To start to say that attention, learning to pay attention, is the most basic form of love. And this is really, you'll find in every spiritual tradition and the religious traditions that are rooted in mysticism and spirituality, we're learning to pay attention. That when we pay attention, we awaken to who we are. So the first place we train often in meditation is to this inner life. And you might just again, as part of the practice for tonight, sense what happens when you turn your attentions again to this moment in your body and in your heart. Just to close your eyes and take a few breaths and sense, you don't have to come into some sitting posture to pay attention. (laughs) It's helpful sometimes, but just sense again. What happens when you have the intention to re-arrive? And let it be gentle. Sometimes what we find is it's just delicious. It's like, ah, yeah, this is what I'm alive for, is to just feel that immediacy and freshness, really knowing that we're here. It's like the difference between dreaming and waking up in the morning. And yet sometimes what we find when we have this attention to re-arrive is what we arrive in is difficult or unpleasant. And then the question comes, well, why would I want to become present if it's unpleasant here? You know, if what I come back into is angst and uneasiness and, and physical discomfort. So a story for you, um, true story of a client that I was working with some years ago and she was adopted, and a lot of her issues were kind of a lifelong struggle making peace with the fact that her natural mother gave her away. I mean, that's duplicating Eden again, right? You know, there she was, and right from the very beginning she somehow or other got kicked out, got the message that I don't want you. That's a big one. And although this is, it seems more extreme with someone that's adopted, every one of us at some point gets the message that we're not okay as we are. That in order to belong, 
we need to be different. So it's in all of our psyches. So for this woman, it didn't matter what she accomplished or what other people told her about being a nice person or a good person. Uh, She always second-guessed it, and she always had this kind of fundamental conviction that even when she was being most kind and helpful to others, somehow or other it was a deep selfish thing and she was really just trying to get approval so she'd feel belonging. So she always kind of framed it that it was never really altruistic. Basically she felt like she was always trying to redeem herself from being not good enough for her natural mother. So I asked her at one point how long she had been treating herself this way, just always, no matter what it was, framing it that she really wasn't good enough or everything she was doing was just trying to be good enough. And when she thought about that question, you know, how long had she been this harsh? She got really sad. She her eyes filled with tears because it was for as long as she could remember. And when she started sensing, oh, how long she had really severed belonging to her own heart and soul, uh, that brought up a lot of compassion. So that was the beginning of paying attention. She started paying attention to her own suffering. Now she had two children of her own, so I also asked her how she felt about her children. And as she kind of held them in her awareness, she felt this kind of enormous upwelling of love. And so I invited her to kind of drop all her stories about anything and just feel this love for her children. And as she did that, viscerally, you know, I said, so this is your essence, this love. And over the months her practice was to pay attention to her own suffering, the suffering that came from putting herself down and to pay attention to that love until she started getting more familiar with her being as a compassionate, loving being than that small identity of a flawed self striving to be better. Now this is a really important shift in identity that the Buddha described as awakening where we engage our attention, we really are willing to pay attention to where we're vulnerable. And if we're willing to pay attention to where we feel most lonely without running away or hiding, where we feel most effective, where we feel jealous, where we feel ashamed, if we really pay attention, our hearts get very tender towards ourselves because we see the suffering that's there. That's one kind of paying attention. And if we pay attention to where we love, we get it that the truth is we really do love. That is our depth. So we start learning who we are in a deeper way and letting that be the identity that we rest in. We start reconnecting. This is one level. We cannot love our earth. We cannot love each other if we've turned on ourselves and aren't willing to feel our own inner life, our vulnerability. So then we widen the circle. And so much of spiritual practices make peace with this moment within ourselves and then widen the circle to start including everyone that we touch. 
And it's very easy to feel like a space suit self as we engage with each other. It's a real habit. And it's wonderful to start paying attention to how, no matter how deeply we've meditated or relaxed or open we might feel, how quickly our personalities just reconstruct themselves and we play out our scene with each other. If you took a poll, people gathering in any kind of a social setting, and you really asked each person, well, did you feel like you really belonged, you were right kind of in the heart of that gathering, or did you feel like you were kind of on the outside looking through a window, one of the new ones, new people, or one of the less involved people, or just not really belonging, most people would say they were outsiders. I love this story by Mark Van Doren. A boy named Eddie Shell came one afternoon to play with Frank and me, and at the hour for going home did not know how to do so. This is a malady that afflicts all children, but my mother was not sure how she should handle it in Eddie's case. She consulted us secretly as to whether he should be asked to say for supper. We thought not, so she hinted to him that his mother might be expecting him. He was so slow in acting upon the hint that we all were in despair and began to feel guilty because we had not pressed him to stay. What I remember now is Eddie standing at last on the other side of the screen door and trying to say goodbye as if he meant it. My mother said warmly, Well, Eddie, come and see us again. Whereupon he opened the door and walked in. (laughs) It's so easy to forget how much everyone that we see wants to belong and often feels unsure about belonging. It's so easy when we're in that spacesuit self where we're concerned about our own wants and fears to really create an unreal other out there and really have other people be two-dimensional figures and forget their humanity. It says one, uh, the monk Ajahn Amaro, some of you have met him, describes it that when we're in traffic everybody else is the traffic. You know, we're not the traffic, it's the traffic out there. I think it's great. And we curse that traffic. And, we're, and we have all these kind of reactivities towards the cars as if they're the people, as if that really rep, that shape and that color vehicle, that style and that make actually takes on a personality and we have a relationship that's a little bit aversive with it sometimes. If we are creating self and other, if we're in that spacesuit self, uh, other people become the object of our greed, either we want something from them or our fear. Some of you might remember a few months ago I described this, that two doctors are standing by the bedside of a dying man and one of them says to him, so, can we have all your stuff after you die? (laughs) And underneath it says, doctors without boundaries. So what happens when we're feeling separate is that we're either trying to get stuff from another person, we're trying to protect ourselves from what they might be trying to get from us. We try to prove ourselves. We really want to be right and we really want to look good. 
a friend of mine uh, called me last night and was describing something that had happened recently with her young daughter, six-year-old. Her daughter had, she had been trying to put her daughter to sleep, but her daughter seemed very distraught. So she asked her what was wrong, and finally the confession came out that several months earlier this little girl had lied to her friend. Her friend had gone to the hospital for something, I don't know what, come back and told her, you know, she had been to the hospital. And this little girl said, well, I've been to the hospital too. And she lied. And so her mom, you know, talked with her about lying and together they wrote this little letter to the girl's friend that basically said, you know, I actually haven't been to a hospital, probably someday I will have to go to a hospital, but as of yet, you know. And then she seemed to relax some, and so uh, after a bedtime story, the little girl looked at her mom and she said, you know why they call it lying? You lie awake. And it's true. As long as we're in any way trying to present a self to each other, we can't really relax. We definitely can't feel intimate with each other. And this happens even in in spiritual life between different spiritual groups. In fact, as many of you know, the closer two groups are spiritually, more like-minded actually, the more acrimony sometimes develops. One of the great stories of how even in spiritual life we lock into being right. A Taoist master was sitting naked in his mountain cabin meditating. A group of Confucianists entered the door of his hut, having hiked up the mountain, intending to lecture him on the rules of proper conduct. When they saw the sage sitting naked before them, they were shocked and asked, What are you doing sitting in your hut without any pants on? The sage replied, This entire universe is my hut. This little hut is my pants. What are you fellows doing inside my pants? So it's one of the deepest conditionings in us to navigate and to perceive each other as an other that in some way we're trying to win over or get rid of and it creates a profound loneliness. We end up feeling at the end of the day, so to speak, quite alone and lonely. This was from the Holocaust Museum, probably m- many of you have seen this at the end of the exhibit. Martin Nimoller, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, wrote this. First they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. These lives are totally interconnected. We're totally connected to our earth. And until we start paying attention, the violence that we do to ourselves and each other just spreads. Thich Nhat Hanh describes awareness as nonviolence. 
I think that's a really beautiful, simple way to think about it. That awareness is nonviolence. Because in a moment of awareness, we know that the socialists are not others and the Jews are not others. We don't need in a moment of awareness to lie to our friends or pretend or convince somebody that we're right. Awareness is completely present and kind. So it takes training though, because we have this habit. We each have such a habit of feeling separate and flawed and disconnected. So we train, and the training, as I've described a few weeks ago, this bodhisattva training, comes down to being able to see the vulnerability within ourselves and each other. Just as my client did, the woman that was adopted, to really see that vulnerability and hurt. If we can see that in each other, we get kind. And then the other part of our training, see the goodness. See that each one of us wants to be happy, that no one wants to suffer. See that each of us has the divine shining through. It's as Thomas Merton wrote that this whole world is transparent and the divine shines through everything and everybody. And this isn't just a fable or a story, it's true. And we can learn to see that. And when we do, we naturally feel reverence. We naturally want to protect life. Even if it means giving our life, we want to protect life. So we learn to pay attention, this basic way of loving. It's not just pay attention to our inner life and with our friends. It's also the way to bring peace between ethnic groups and countries where the most deep and painful misunderstandings have built up. It's the whole essence of reconciliation, that everywhere we look, if there's any answer, so to speak, any response to the violence in this world, we have to learn to listen to each other. We have to learn to listen so we can find out the realness of being humans and of being connected. Recently, I got a letter that described a peace walk that has been, has been going on now for a um, number of months in Israel, and it's made up of a group of Palestinians and Israelis that are doing mindfulness meditation. And some of you might have heard about this. They organized this walk together where they would dialogue with each other, dialogue with wherever, whoever they met. And the basic principle, to listen to listen with as much openness and attention as possible to each other and all they met. And so you'd find Palestinians um, confronted by outraged Israelis and just trying to listen and vice versa. And this is one description. One woman who participated in the group, a woman named Marion, sent this letter. She was on the walk and she took a day off and then she was going to meet up with the group Um, at the end of the day at the Gaffa Gate. And so she arrived there a bit early, and when she arrived at the meeting place, she bore witness to a, a confrontation that was going on. A Palestinian woman mistakenly thought that an old Arab man was being attacked by a Jewish woman, and so she rushed in with a frenzy to rescue 
him. And Marian described how she tried to explain to this woman that there was no no injustice going on and there was no need to be um, so outraged because this Arab man was not, nothing was going on with him. So here's what she wrote. She said, um, but she's furious with me and then she screams out her hatred and her despair and her pain at me. This is Palestine accusing Israel and at this moment I represent Israel for her. The whole situation is greater than the two of us and takes on proportions beyond our present meeting. She shouts out her sorrow about what is going on now in the territories, the military incursion into Palestinian town. She talks in particular about Janine where some terrible fighting is now taking place. She has family and friends there and she says that our soldiers are war criminals. She is convinced that we want to kill them all. Why do we hate them so much, she says. They're not responsible for the Holocaust. Why should they be paying the price? She tells me about the refugees and their constant suffering for which we are responsible. Pointing at the Jewish woman, she assures me that this Sephardic woman was treated with honor as a human being in an Arab country from where she comes and look at now how she behaves with Palestinians and it goes on and on. She shouts and spews her hatred for Israel at me. I don't try to argue with her at all. I don't show any reaction to these accusations. I feel a huge compassion and an intense need to listen to her, only to listen to her. My patience is nourished by the understanding that behind this overwhelming hatred is a deep suffering and pain aggravated by the present situation of war. I'm aware that what reinforces my strength at this moment is that I have absolutely no doubt that the suffering and pain of the Israeli people is not less real and legitimate. Each person, each being is suffering on all sides. For me, this is not an issue of who is right and who is wrong, so I can feel very calm and peaceful deep down, and I know that this is the only way to calm her fury. I let her express herself for a long time without interrupting her. As she continues to shout at me, I tell her that she has no need to speak so loudly because I'm listening to her with all my attention. At the same time, I find myself caressing her arm. She lets me do it and progressively lowers her voice while continuing to let her despair overflow. She says to me, Do you understand why some of us come and commit suicide among you? You kill us anyway, so why not kill you at the same time? She even mentions the possibility of coming and blowing herself up out of despair. I tell her softly that I don't want her to die. Nobody should come to this decision. We all suffer on both sides. She goes on and on claiming that the Zionists only want to get rid of the Palestinians. I tell her, you see, I am a Zionist and I don't want to get rid of you. I wish we could live together and be good neighbors. She listens to me now. She tells me about the demonstration that took place the week before. She complains about the Jewish organizations. She asked me to donate some money to buy phone cards for Palestinians who need them. I give her some money. At this stage, the conversation is quite normal between us. She doesn't shout anymore. She is even able to listen to me. She is almost calm when I notice the people of the walk approaching us slowly at the top of the street. They are in a line, a hundred of them, one after the other, walking in silence, slowly, quietly, aware of each step, creating an atmosphere of peace and safety around them. They are very present. 
They radiate calm and warmth. I point them out to her and explain that this is the reason I came here, to join a walk of peace in which Palestinians and Israelis are together. I tell her about the walk, its message of coexistence and peace, peace at every step, here and now. I suggest that she come into the line with me. She hesitates and rejects my offer. At this moment they reach us. Several people I know, some Palestinians, shake my hand warmly as they go by. A young woman, very active in the group of rapprochement between the two peoples, approaches her and gives her a kiss. It appears that they know each other. I notice that she is very moved by the walk and the atmosphere it radiates. She seems to me calmer and calmer, nothing like the furious woman I met only several minutes before. The end of the line passes us by now and I want to join it. Again, I invite her and again she declines. I tell her that I understand and respect her decision. Before I go, I tell her, I'm sure that someday we will succeed in building peace between us. She smiles and replies, me too. Then, to my total surprise, she comes close to me with tears in her eyes and then kisses me on the cheeks. She walks alongside us for a while. She tells me she likes this walk, that it makes her feel good, gives her relief, and that her mood is much better now. I am very, very moved. I feel overwhelmed by this encounter, especially by its unexpected ending. A seed of peace has been sown in her heart and mine even more deeply as well. I wanted to take the time to read that because there's not an easy answer and probably it takes generations to begin to really listen to each other. But there's this possibility, whether we're listening to our inner life, our spouse, our sister, our grandparent, our teenager, that we develop a capacity to realize that we belong together. That's the possibility. Martin Luther King describes this as soul force. He says, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We'll match your physical force with our soul force. We will not hate you, but we cannot in good conscience obey your unjust laws. We will soon wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And in winning our freedom, we will so appeal to your hearts and consciences that we will win your freedom as well. So it can start anywhere. Anyone that's willing to put down our armor and our ideas about right and wrong and genuinely pay attention. Let our attention be the most basic form of love. That's what heals. Michael Mead described it wonderfully, the ritual in an African tribe of how this kind of paying attention can bring people together. This is a ritual about an ancestor's tooth. And the idea is that anybody in the tribe that gets sick, that starts acting out in any way, misbehaving, having vile moods, etc., is really, it's the energy of an ancestor's tooth that's been trapped inside that person. 
And so the whole tribe gathers because it has to do with an ancestor that's everybody's ancestor. And there's a whole night of drumming and chanting and dancing. And during that night, everybody speaks of their pain and sorrow, of their difficult truths. And the energy is freed up only when everyone expresses the unspoken truths, listening to each other and being real. So this is, this is the practice, whether we're on the cushion, letting our inner life express itself and being willing to pay attention, or with each other, what happens is as we pay attention, if we really pay attention, we start caring and we don't want to cause suffering any longer. This is um, Kurt Vonnegut. And the way you, this is in the, in the novel, you see this man's watching TV and he's watching a movie from World War II. You know, all those endless black and white movies from World War II. But in this, someone's put the reel on backwards and there he is sitting and this is how it looks to him, okay? This is great. American planes full of holes and wounded men and corpses take off backwards from an airfield in England. Over France, a few German fighter planes flew at them backwards and sucked bullets and shell fragments from some of the planes and crewmen. (laughs) They did the same for the wrecked American bombers on the ground, and those planes flew up backwards to join the formation. (laughs) The formation flew backwards over a German city that was in flames. The bombers opened their bomb bay doors, exerted miraculous magnetism which shrunk the fires, gathered them into cylindrical steel containers, and lifted the containers by magic into the bellies of the planes. The containers were stored neatly in racks, but there were still a few wounded Americans though, and some of the bombers were in bad repair. Over France though, German fighters came up again and made everything and everybody as good as new. When the bombers got back to their base, the steel cylinders were taken from their racks and shipped back to the United States, where factories were operating day and night, dismantling the cylinders, separating the dangerous contents into minerals. Touchingly, it was mainly women who did this work. The minerals were then shipped to specialists in remote areas, It was their business to put them into the ground and hide them cleverly so they would never hurt anybody ever again. (laughs) So we pay attention and we arrive in our natural caring. And it's the same way with this earth that if we get so caught in our thoughts and in our small-mindedness and in the media that we don't look at what's happening to our earth, we don't discover within us that natural reverence and caring that if we saw what was going on, we would never let it happen. We'd never participate in that way. A few weeks ago I uh, started reading a book by Ed Ayers called God's Last Offer. And it's an alarming and brilliantly written book about what's going on. And he describes the main, what he calls spikes or uh, phenomena that's going on in this earth that um, if we don't respond to and don't respond to quickly, 
will make the earth uninhabitable, really destroy life here. He describes them as the first one as being carbon dioxide spike, which so many of us know about. In fact, today's front page of the Post described on how, uh, because of the consumer's desire for small trucks and SUVs, we're just buying more of them, and they release the most carbon dioxide when the gasolines burn. Well, this spike of carbon dioxide is creating the warming that's then creating the kind of climatic fluctuations that's wreaking havoc. That's the first one. The second one, the population of humans. Too many of us. The third one, the amount that we consume of this earth, the trees that we take, the way that we just take from all the resources. And then the fourth is extinction, the beings that are dying How many species do you know that are going extinct right now? There's so many. Just as we speak, there are species going extinct that will never, that life form, that precious life form, will never be part of our universe again. You know, you hear about some of them, for instance, that there's the loss of certain kind of wasps in the Amazon rainforests, and you think, you know, okay, so a few species of wasps, right? And it's happening because they're denuding the forest and they're burning and setting up farms and cattle. So these wasps are going. But when you look more closely, you find out that wasps pollinate figs, which are the mainstay of life in the rainforest. And that three months of the year, when the rainforests are most barren, all the higher levels of life depend on these figs to live. So, no wasps, no figs. No figs, no spider monkeys, no jaguars, no other larger mammals. So they're this keystone species, and we don't think like that. We don't realize that this life is completely interconnected, and that the greed of humans is wiping out life forms, the diversity on this earth. This is Barry, Wendell Berry writes, it is the destruction of the world in our own lives that drives us half insane and more than half to destroy that which we were given in trust. How will we bear it? It is the destruction of the world in our own lives that drives us half insane and more than half to destroy that which we were given in trust. How will we bear it? And yet the only way to move towards healing is to let ourselves open to the anguish and despair of the fact that this earth is being destroyed, that life is really being hurt, to not experience other life forms as other. There's a a project in uh, California to save the gorillas and a lot of stories about one of the chimps, Mike, who became a beloved of the project and They uh, taught him sign language so much so that he can really communicate a lot with the scientists. And 
he was orphaned, his mother was butchered when he was young, and they taught him enough sign language so that he was actually able to describe to the scientists how he felt when his mother was killed. All of life wants to live, and all of life is precious. There's a description of how we get caught. The Buddha described it as feeling separate. Another description is anthropocentrism, where we think humans are the top, or special, or separate. And uh, this is a wonderful description by John Seed of He's an Australian rainforest activist of how we get caught in this delusion. He says it's similar to sexism, but substitute human race for man and all other species for woman. He says when humans investigate and see through their layers of anthropocentric self-cherishing, a most profound change in consciousness begins to take place. Alienation subsides. The human is no longer a stranger, apart. Your humanness is then recognized as merely the most recent stage of your existence. And as you stop identifying exclusively with this chapter, you start to get in touch with yourself as a mammal, as a vertebrae, as a species only recently emerged from the rainforest. As the fog of amnesia disperses, there is a transformation in your relationship to other species and in your commitment to them. Because he works in the rainforest, he described how this happens to him. He says, I am protecting the rainforest, quote-unquote, develops to, I am part of the rainforest protecting myself. I am that part of the rainforest recently emerged into thinking. What a relief then. The thousands of years of imagined separation are over and we begin to recall our true nature, alive, belonging to the whole. In Buddhism, this kind of connectedness has been described quite beautifully as the jeweled net of Indra. And this net is described, instead of a hierarchical experience of life, each being occupies a node in this giant net of everything. And so each node is a gem, and the gem reflects with all its facets all other gems, and all the reflections too, back and forth infinitely. And so the world is interwoven so that each gem contains all the mysteries and the beauty, each gem is sacred. So that's what we're awakening to, that experience. And rather than trying to control another gem or have power over another person, we open to the currents of energy and information and aliveness. We draw on our connectedness. It's a power with. Here's some of the most familiar words to many who are awakening their reverence to life. This is Chief Seattle. How can you buy or sell the sky, the warmth of the land? This idea is strange to us. If we do not own the freshness of the air and the sparkle of the water, how can you buy them? Every part of this earth is sacred to my people. Every shining pine needle, every sandy shore, 
Every mist in the dark woods, every clearing and humming insect is wholly in the memory and experience of my people. All things share the same breath. We will consider your offer to buy the land. I will make one condition. The white man must treat the beasts of this land as his brothers. What is a man without beasts? If all the beasts are gone, man would die from a great loneliness of spirit. For whatever happens to the beasts soon happens to man. All things are connected. This we know. The earth does not belong to man. Man belongs to the earth. This we know. All things are connected like the blood which unites one family. All things are connected. Whatever befalls the earth befalls the sons of the earth. Man does not weave the web of life. He is merely a strand of it. Whatever he does to the web, he does to himself. So this path, which is also described, disengaged Buddhism as the path of the bodhisattva, is training ourselves to see this, training ourselves to connect with our life breath this moment, to feel connected to the life in a very immediate way, and to look at each other and see the human and the divine that's looking back at us, and then to look at the trees and the insect and the sunset, and the birds flying through the skies and sensing these two are part of our living experience. This is our practice. It's a training on all levels, but it does take training. Our habit is very, very strong to contract and forget that we are connected. Trudy Todd, one of our members of our Sangha, wrote this at the end of one of the week-long retreats we have in the Shenandoah. Uh, The retreats are called Intimacy with Life, and I just wanted to share with you how she described her experience. How long is a week? Long enough for the ladybugs on the ceiling to find each other and form a pile. Long enough for the maple tree outside the dining room window to drop its leaves long enough for the new lawn to show itself green, long enough to hear all the songs of the Carolina Wren, and long enough to laugh, share sunsets, and touch peace. How long is a week? Long enough to see the spaciousness of the cloudless October sky, vast enough to hold my caring heart in this moment. So let's just sit for a moment and discover the possibility of intimacy with the life that's right here. To pay attention is to love. Let your attention be gentle. Just resting in these moments and feeling the life of the body. 
holding whatever experience arises with a compassionate heart. Whom or what is one to love? Is one to choose a certain leaf upon the tree of life and pour upon it all one's heart? What of the branch that bears the leaf? What of the stem that holds the branch? What of the bark that shields the stem? What of the roots that feed the bark, the stem, the branches, and the leaves? What of the soil feeding the roots, and what of the sun and sea and air that fertilizes the soil? If one small leaf upon the tree be worthy of your love, find in yourself that spaciousness of heart that embraces all of this precious life. Perhaps in the deepest way, a pause is a way of honoring this life, this sacred life. Like the word namo, I bow, I cherish this moment, this life. So we'll close chanting namo. We'll chant it five times together. And feel free to let your voices mingle and harmonize as they do. Please inhale.
May all beings be filled with loving kindness. May all beings touch a great and natural peace. May all beings awaken and be free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.